Welcome to The Pillars, the podcast of the 363rd ISR Wing of the United States Air Force. I'm Chaplain Jim Bridgham. I'm Dr. Jerry Walker. And I'm Sergeant Ackerberg. On each episode of The Pillars, we find a brief resilience topic so you can practically fix any potential roadblocks you encounter and finish a better wingman, airman, and leader. But today is the first interview we have on our podcast series. Well, I guess second after Air Force Ken. Sure, sure. So, well, the first interview of 2018. First 2000. Yeah, there we go. Yeah, first of 2018. You know and we are very pleased to have Lieutenant Colonel Justice, the commander of the 17th Intelligence Squadron, right here at Langley Air Force Base, here with us today to share her insights and her stories of resilience. Ma'am, thank you for, for coming and welcome. Yep, no problem. Thank you. So, so where did you grow up? Um, Green up, Illinois, mostly. Okay. Um, back and forth between that and Shreveport or Keithville, Louisiana. Okay. Nobody knows where Keithville is, so at all. <laughs> and what was um, that like? What was it like growing up there? Um, so I wasn't, most people ask first if I'm a military brat because mm-hmm. of all the moving and it had nothing to do with that. And they're both, you know, Shreveport's a military town. Mm-hmm. Um, parents weren't military. It was just a lot of, we lived where the jobs were okay. and where my parents could find work. And what did your parents do for work? Um, whatever anybody needed him to. So we bounced around from a heavy equipment operator. My dad could operate most heavy equipment, um, lane fiber optic cables, um, concrete, maintenance on university campuses, maintenance in trailer parks, that kind of thing. Okay. So, so whereas military brats, right, will move around a lot and um, you know, there's a there's an ex- expectation there. There's uh, the knowledge that yes, one or both of my parents are in the military, and so because of that, we're moving around. But you know, those jobs are stable. It's it's uh, firm employment. I'm wondering how differentially that affected you as a as a kid growing up um, with your parents constantly moving and and taking on these different jobs. It, it seems to me like that would be maybe a little less stable, or or might uh, as a kid give me some bit of uncertainty in, you know, my future and the family's future? Um, no, not re- I think that is an adult projection on kids. Okay. Kids are fine with, I didn't know any different. Oh, okay. It was my life, and it wasn't until I was in high school that I figured out that my life was not everybody's life. So it didn't bother me that I went to, um, I believe... 10 moves by the time I was in high school. Wow. Um, the longest I ever I ever stayed in one place was about nine months was the longest we ever lived in one location because hmm. that is the point when a landlord no longer cares how many kids you have or how cold it is outside. <laughs> <laughs> um, nine months without paying rent will get you evicted. So, hmm. um, But as kids, we were from a pretty big family too. All of us were fine. None of us knew that that wasn't life. Sure. and that, that was you, normal. It was normal that you change schools every few years. And how big of a family? How many brothers and sisters? Um, so the ones, kind of my core family, mm-hmm. are there's six kids. Okay. And then um, if you include steps in there, then there's 13 of us. But growing up, there, there are six of us that are the core siblings. That And that like, eviction process, so how many times did that happen? Was that... It, it happened a lot. It was each move. Um, the most stable we ever were is um, when we moved from Louisiana on my probably fifth grade move, because we moved back and forth a lot. Um, mm. In fifth grade, we decided rather than moving in somewhere and trying to go through the rent process, because my parents had trouble even getting into a place, mm-hmm. um, through my dad's connections with all the work he did in the junkyards, found an old school bus, and we got the school bus and lived in that for several years, drove up to Illinois, 
parked it on my grandmother's lot and lived in the school bus for probably three, three years, I would say. And that is the most stable Okay. Like living circumstance. Wow. So in the school bus, I'm trying to visualize this because a standard school bus, you have the seats. Mm-hmm. Do you guys tear those out and just turn them into beds? Or Yeah. So we, um, it was uh, way before RVing was cool mm-hmm. and tiny living was cool. We made it cool. The original tiny house. It was. It was absolutely. Um, all the seats, we tore out all the seats except the driver's seat because we had to drive our house mm-hmm. to, right. um, to Illinois. So all the seats were torn out. We had a stand-up. There was a shower stall in there. We put a kitchen in towards the back door. There was a stove, sink, and then a, a toilet, a shower. We had a TV in there. And then towards the front half of the bus, like right behind the driver's seat, there was curtains. And then we built, um, it was the old school bus with the shelves mm-hmm. in the top where okay. people used to put books and stuff. And so we would use that as storage. And then... We had um, couches on both sides of it, so just imagine the seats facing each other instead mm-hmm. of in rows of seats looking forward. And those couches, um, in the evenings, the backs of the couch pulled up, and you have bunk beds then. Oh, And wow. you, we fastened them to the ceiling. And wow. so the smaller kids slept on the bunk beds. And then underneath the couch, we had drawers, which were storage. And one of them, kind of like a trundle bed, would pull out and make another bed so we'd put two kids on the top of each bunk bed and then my parents had um, each of the ones below and then the two youngest kids would sleep on the floor would pull out a mat and they'd sleep there so at that time there were um, five kids and then the two two parents and the bus. that was three years at what ages were you uh, during that time fifth sixth and seventh grade fifth, sixth, seventh grade mm-hmm. w- did you have any realization at that time that it wasn't normal or the, um, whenever not, maybe not normal, typical, not typical. <laughs> yeah. maybe not yeah. normal, but yeah. typical, not typical. Um, Only when, um, when we, I would go over to friends' houses because in Louisiana it didn't seem unusual because we lived in a trailer park. Okay. So the only difference was ours had a lot more windows than everybody <laughs> else's, <laughs> yeah. and the entrance was a little unconventional with the uh, you know the school bus opening doors. Um, but other than that, it, I, I would say probably around the sixth grade time frame because uh, the school bus picked us up. In yeah. front of the school bus. And, <laughs> uh, it, w- it didn't necessarily, it was obviously a school bus, but it wasn't painted yellow because we learned driving from Louisiana to Illinois got stopped at least four times oh. that I'm aware of. It is illegal to have a drive a bus that color. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. And uh, so when we finally got to Illinois, we painted it beige. Okay. And that's why church buses are never yellow. It's illegal for anything other than a school to... I never knew this. It's we are full fact. of random pa- uh, facts in this trip on uh, on our podcast today do you have so what, what was your relationship like with your siblings growing up um i would say this is probably about as typical as it gets um it was different it depended on the sibling okay um <laughs> the the oldest sibling um we kind of all just didn't really none of us were really close mm-hmm. i was closest to my brother that is um one below me He's about, there's about an 18 month difference between us um, and, and it's a standard family. He's who I was closest to, but I wasn't who he was closest to. His closest relationship was our other brother that was younger than him. That's amazing. So you went from uh, growing up there uh, in, a, in this very transient situation, and then you went to college? I did. Um, and I was the first one in my family, aunts, uncles, cousins, siblings, that went to college. 
And uh, I remember you telling us before that was a it was an interesting uh, way you maneuvered uh, into college. I don't know if you <laughs> it, want to tell that story. <laughs> it, it was. I won't tell it in a lot of, in a lot of detail, but okay. it was not the the most. Um, Maybe conventional conventional way. <laughs> way to get into college. I did, in fact, get it. I, I applied there. I got an acceptance letter. Um, the only reason I even took an ACT is because I was um, staying with a friend who, on the weekend, her parents were like, "Well, next weekend she's taking the ACT," so they signed me up. Oh, and wow. my friend's parents are the wow. ones that yeah. paid for me to take an ACT. It was never a question for them. Hmm. So I had, I had taken the ACT and so they convinced me, they're like, well, we didn't pay for it for nothing. You might as well apply to a college. Um, so I did and I got accepted. I have never been surrounded by anyone who's ever been to college. So I didn't realize there was another step. Hmm. Um, so I got my friend's parents to drop me off at Southern Illinois University, Edwardsville. And I just had them drop me off at the dorms. And I had one bag with me. And they said, well, do you need any help? I'm like, no, I'm good. And so they (laughs) dropped me off. And it was a few hours from where I actually grew up. So then college was my, I I have to change my situation and my scenario. Mm. Not because I was, I I never for a second thought that I was too good for this. Mm. I love, love going home, that small town. I never thought I was too good for it. I just didn't want to stay there forever. Um, I started working when I was about 12 years old mm. um, to for income for the family. All of us had jobs that all, it wasn't me, my spending money that I put in a piggy bank. It went straight to my parents. Um, and I just didn't want to do that for the rest of my life. So, so to stick there for a minute, what jobs did you do? I started babysitting. Cause, okay. So obviously there's a limit on what you can do at sure. certain ages. Um I started babysitting, and then I got kind of known as the babysitter, and so I, I did that, and I was incredibly reliable. I had raised most of my siblings. Yeah. Um, I knew CPR. I had a friend that was, uh, their parent was a nurse, so I had her when I was, you know, started babysitting teach me CPR so I could tell parents that if something happens, I, I know what to do. Um, and so I started doing that and then I started busing tables at a really small town restaurant that hmm. so I wasn't actually interacting much and I, I started doing that when I was probably 15 years old and then when I got old enough to go to college then my best friend's uh, father owned a pharmacy in a town over and he let me on the weekends he paid for me to get my um, pharmaceutical technician license and get certified so I could do that during the summer oh great Outstanding. And in college, what did you study? Um, I started out as a math major because uh, academics were really easy for me through all of high school and junior high. It was just, it wasn't really a challenge mm. and math was pretty easy for me. And my roommate in college was an electrical engineer wow. and she was a math class ahead of me and I was in calculus too while she was in differential equations and I was helping and I didn't have any problem helping my roommates with their math and then she showed me differential equations I'm like tapping out can't do that (laughs) that was the the straw that broke the camel's back and then so I did a hard left in changing my degree and went to cultural geography wow which I am so happy with I am very passionate about that it's um so it's a geography degree so I did your standard geography some um geology, hydrogeology, 
meteorology, climatology, everyology that has to do with <laughs> physical science. But when I found, kind of went down a cultural path, so studying um, religions, languages, culture, how that impacts um, the world, that was where I really kind of landed, and it worked fantastically for what I ended up doing ultimately, which was intel. But my focus was tribal, with African and South oh, American wow. tribal that's cultures. Really interesting. That's, that's, that's evolved into the human geography emphasis, which a lot of folks are pushing at the national intelligence level. So that's really interesting. That's really great. Yeah. So, so how did you then uh, make your way from college into the military? Um, I actually went into college. Um, I was in Civil Air Patrol when I was in high school. Okay. Because I surrounded myself with, while I was from an incredibly poor, and I do not mean that as like low middle class, we were poverty Mm -hmm. uh, level, would sometimes eat once every two days Mm. kind of thing. Um, I surrounded myself with friends who it was never, they ate at a table with their families and there was never a are you going to college the only conversations they ever had is which college are you going to mm-hmm. and i i don't think i ever sought out good influence friends but that's just who i ended up surrounded with and the friends have a significantly higher impact on a child than their parents do absolutely yes um and i absolutely attribute my going to college to my friends um the ones i lived with immediately after I graduated high school are the ones that drove me there, the ones that paid for me to do the ACT. They signed me up. They didn't ask me about it. Um, And then another really close friend, the reason I went to college is also completely in their hands. Um, She was in Civil Air Patrol and said, hey, I do this on the weekends. You want to do this with me? And I said, sure, I'll do that. And through Civil Air Patrol, one of the cadre there um, knew somebody in ROTC, knew hmm. ROTC cadre at Southern Illinois University. So got a hold of him and said, if you want to go to college, then this is one way you can do it because I know you can't afford it. Mm-hmm. So it was um, Civil Air Patrol, a retired lieutenant colonel from the Air Force, <laughs> knew an active duty major who was working in a ROTC detachment that he filled out all the paperwork for me, got my information and submitted it for me. Standing. So just to add to that, uh, one of the reasons I believe I'm not in jail or dead is because of Civil Air Patrol growing up oh. from where I grew up. <laughs> it's part of my story. So for those listening, if you are interested, even if you separate from the Air Force, whether it's retirement or separate, I highly recommend you look at this program just from at least two people here today who've been impacted by that program very positively. Colonel Justice, one of the things that stood out to me about your story is um, you said you're very positively impacted by the people with, with whom you surrounded yourself. And so... Perhaps um, I heard you posit it had it not been for some of those people and their influence on you, you might not have gone that direction. And um, you know, who knows? Maybe you hadn't been in Civil Air Patrol, or maybe the the idea of going to college just wasn't at the forefront of your mind. And so uh, things might have turned out very differently. And, and, and it's interesting because to me, because you know, clearly you had the potential to excel um, in that in that situation, and you know, of course, in your current uh, job. Um, but the, the main influence was, you know, not your test grades. It wasn't, um, your, your upbringing or the circumstances of your, your family. It was the people that you surrounded yourself by. And we've talked about that before, how essentially we sometimes in our adult lives are an average of our five, um, 
main friends or our primary mm-hmm. contacts. And Chaplain, can you speak more to that? Yeah, absolutely. We become the average of the five people we spend the most time with. Okay. And generally, those people are not bringing you, you're not bringing people maybe uh, that are down up necessarily. They're bringing you down. So it's important to pick and cultivate those friendships very carefully. And so for those listening, if you are picking friends, and sometimes we have to, I don't say call friends, sounds like we're watching a really bad movie, um, but I'm saying we have to pick those people you want to surround yourself with. If you can't find them, you can cultivate them by adding podcasts or audiobooks in and kind of receive that mentorship as well. But I'd highly encourage you to make sure you're surrounded with people who help to bring you up in any way, shape, or form. Because that influence happens sometimes without us even realizing it. Um, oh, absolutely. It, and I see this all the time. You know, not to, to dig too much into this, but on the clinical side, um, especially when I was working with alcoholics and addicts, their main social group, so I, don't, I don't want to call it a social support group, but um, were other people who used in a similar manner as, as they they did. And that was their normal. And so when they tried to um, go through rehabilitation and recover um, from those illnesses, uh, they had to cut off those people because yeah. that influence was going to remain unless they, they um, made the decision that they, they need to seek a new sphere of influence. And Absolutely. so if we want to bring ourselves up, we've got to seek out those people who are uh, perhaps already operating at that high level. And it's not just a mentor. It's it's the people who can fill your heads, uh, fill your head with ideas and mm-hmm. with um, a new level of normal that's going to help raise you up. So in college, what other activities did you do? You had ROTC, you had a class load. Were there Was there anything you gravitated towards in college? Um, I ran a lot because I was in uh, cross country okay. and track and basketball when I was in high school. So the running was just natural. Um, I, I gravitate towards team events, but in college I got that from all the ROTC. The ROTC fulfilled that for me, and I actively needed to do something that was kind of me time because mm-hmm. I'm, an, I'm an introvert. So I can I can interact with people. I don't have any problems socially interacting with people. It just emotionally taps me out. Sure. <laughs> and so then I have to be like, okay, how do I, how do I deal with this? So um, I found a few friends to run with because it just carried on from that. I'm not fantastic at it. I'm not a great runner, but I find enjoyment in it. So it kind of gives me quiet time to think. I've never been one that runs with um, headphones on mm-hmm. and all of that because then I start focusing on the music and not really my thoughts. My commutes, I listen to music because it kind of helps me zone out. But every now and then I have to dedicate time to go you know, actively think. And the way I do that is when I'm working out and running, it helps me actively and intentionally go no think about something that you either want to do hmm. or that you think you could have done better and that's where I either replay my day and go yeah we need to readdress this tomorrow I didn't do that the right way that's outstanding and that's something we recommend to folks all the time find what whether you're an introvert or extrovert find some way to recover and mm-hmm. process through your day we get a unbelievable amount of information every day that come at us whether it's human interaction or computer interaction or virtual interaction um, with folks over chat or whatnot we have to find a way to process. And we have a large number of introverts, frankly, in the intelligence side. So suggestions like running or meditation, mindfulness, all those things to spend time to help process so that you know you don't lose all your energy. You need to replenish that every day. Okay, so moving on. So in college, you moved to the Air Force. Did you start in Intel then? I did. Um, Intel was in the top of my list, and I was grateful for it. Um, I qualified 
as pilot on the AFOQT, the pilot and nav. One of my, I would say my academic strength is logical thinking and being able to visualize. So I kind of scored incredibly high on the pilot and nav. So they tried to, m multiple people tried to push me in that direction. And it just, um, I've never been driven to be successful because somebody else thinks this is how you're successful in mm -hmm. the Air Force. You need to be a pilot to be successful. I wasn't passionate about it. Um, I didn't see how that was going to tie to what I was passionate about, which was culture, language, religion, studying mm -hmm. people, interacting mm -hmm. with people. Um, so I Intel seemed the way, the way to do it. And again, to the influence, um, one of my cadre was an Intel officer. That's so really I talking to him and him being able to tell me this, these are some of the jobs I've had, um, the geopol, the geopolitical analysis side of it seemed really interesting to me. So that is how I got an Intel. Okay. So it was a first choice and it's what I got picked up for. Okay. So Goodfellow is obviously part of it, but what's mm -hmm. the, what was your first assignment? Aviano. Aviano. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Followed by Kadena. So before, okay. spoiler alert. <laughs> yeah, pretty. And maybe in your first few assignments, what are some things you learned about yourself? That I was strong enough to be alone. Hmm. Um, I, I, because I'd never been alone. Mm -hmm. Putting seven people in a school bus does not allow for much alone time and privacy and which is partly why I think I run again too, because there was mm. we didn't never grew up with a here's a room that you can sit in by yourself. Here's your own room. I've never until I was a second lieutenant. I never had. I'd never been in a room by myself. Wow. Because um, I went into college with roommates. I grew up with three or four roommates. <laughs> you know, so um, we never had quiet areas wow. to just focus. So I think that's part of why running kind of cropped up as well. Um, so I think that it was the, probably the most important lesson I learned in my, has nothing to do with professional development, obviously, but just personally that I could be alone and it was okay. Well, really? our, well, in my opinion, our personal development totally impacts our professional success. Mm -hmm. And sometimes we neglect that personal development thinking we can make up for it with achievement. But it's those lessons we learn, sometimes consciously, sometimes subconsciously, learning how to take care of your your siblings in a closed pl place. I'm sure that there were challenges. I mean, I have kids who argue in the living room setting that <laughs> everything's right. I'm sure there were arguments and challenges yeah. to learn how to navigate that, then moving into the collegiate environment. And then... Honestly, moving that far away from home had to have been difficult. Because I'm thinking three hours away from family and the small mm -hmm. town atmosphere, and then this great assignment, but to be by yourself, I can imagine that could have been hard. It, it absolutely was. And I very quickly, um, the benefit of overseas assignments is that it's a significantly tighter community. So it almost felt like being in college and what it was like for me to be at home because you very quickly find the group of single CGOs, mm -hmm. and we did stuff together. We, um, in the summer, had a, down in Lignano, a beach house that 10 of us went in on, completely affordable, to rent a house for five months. And at any given weekend, there were only three or four of us that could, because nobody could go every weekend. And then in the wintertime, we did the same thing in Cortina, got a ski house in Cortina. So you go in with this group. So there was a core group of friends that I did a lot of traveling with, so I was never actually alone i've never really been a loner so <laughs> no, <that's laughs> even to the point right. of studying and how i was talking about like my alone time my running mm -hmm. i have to consciously and actively make an effort 
to focus and look internally and think because even when doing schoolwork, academic work, when I build briefings, I prefer a lot of external noise. I don't like sitting by myself to do it. At home, I'll turn on the TV. I don't need it to be anything. But growing up with just constant activity, yeah. I can't focus in quiet. So, What advice would you give to someone looking for a community? So let's say that person, they're first time away from home, and they're trying to connect with other people. What advice would you give them? <coughs> um, you can either opt for finding people who enjoy the same things as you, and bases offer a lot of those clubs, those communities. Mm-hmm. I tended towards, and again, it was an active, I think a very conscious choice. I specifically seek out people who do different things than me. Hmm. I prefer to surround myself with people who are significantly more active than me, smarter than me, do different things than me. Um, when I was stationed in Aviano, I had never been to a beach in my life. So somebody said beach house. So I was like, yep, I've never done that. I've never been anywhere. Um, I'm from Illinois and Louisiana. They are not known for their mountains <laughs> nor the, um, you know, winter sports. So the ski house in Cortina, I'd never been on a set of skis or anything in my life. So I was like, I'm going to try snowboarding. And then when I was in Kadena, I had, again, never been water, landlocked state. So um, started scuba diving there. And wow. it scared me because I don't know how to swim. So I very specifically seek out things that I've never done, that I don't know how to do, that are going to... I don't, I don't like getting too comfortable because I'm naturally, based on the way I was raised, a lazy person. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to seek out things that are going to push me kind of beyond. If left to my own devices, I'd be sitting at home watching TV for 12 hours a day. That's great. And and I think that's uh, a great message for um, our airmen because we get a lot of folks here on their you know first or second assignment and they're trying to figure out where they fit in. And maybe they're dealing with some of that loneliness, being away from home uh, for the first time or uh, feeling disconnected because they don't feel like there's a lot of folks around here that share the same interests as, as they do. I love that perspective of, um, let me just go out and try something new. You know, I don't know about scuba diving or the beach or, or skiing snowboarding so let's just give it a shot and it sounds like all, all that all those were great experiences um, that you're you're glad that you pushed yourself to do but it did take getting out of your comfort zone a little bit so in reflecting on your past and everything you've done now you're a squadron commander you're leading how have your experiences in the past informed your current leadership style I find myself to be um, self proposed, self-diagnosed, I suppose. Nobody's ever told me this. I think I'm a fairly compassionate and empathetic person because I've experienced such a wide background of experiences that I can rationalize and justify almost anything and why somebody does something where I could be judged very easily. I tend not to lean towards judging people. Um, what are some values perhaps that you have on the basis of your, your life experiences that are really important to you? Um, some of the values I that I bring and that I try and kind of impress on everybody is the being open to everybody's different backgrounds and that okay. people were raised differently. And because somebody chooses a different path doesn't make it not right. It just wasn't your path. Um, I I have a very visceral reaction to judgment. Hmm. 
that people have made um, when you were talking about you know dealing with people in, who have been addicted to things um, there I think there's a tendency to want to judge people who have made those choices mm-hmm. and to judge and think that they are in fact choices um, some people end up in bad places and make decisions that weren't actively I guarantee nobody graduates high school going I'm you know what I want to do I want to get kicked out of the Air Force I want to right people don't make those decisions and when someone makes a misstep to have the compassion to go let's fix it and if it does in fact end in separation from the Air Force a discharge be it, be it a choice or not a choice helping that person to go this isn't the end of your life let's figure out what you're going to do now get back on the rails fix it um you can there death is really the only thing you can't come back from right no other choice that you make is irrevocable um so you can always get back on the rails so just an open mind in leading people and not being judgmental of when people make bad choices I love it. I think that's a great lesson for for all of us. You know, whether you're leading a unit or whether you're a, a brand new airman, um, to remember that we're all people. We all err. We all make mistakes, and uh, we really have to understand what's or try to understand what's going on with somebody and where they're coming from, um, rather than just try to analyze <laughs> them or, or things that they do based on our own subjective experiences. That's great. Well, we've got one more question for you, and uh, this is something we like to, to ask all of our guests. If you had a billboard that you could put all over the country and it could say one thing, what is that message that you would like to, to convey? Um, kind of a little bit, not, not really a billboard. Okay. It's kind of two sentences, really. Um, life's not fair. Some of us have to work harder than others, and it's okay. I like that. It's a good message. That's fantastic. Well, I think that's a good um, place to wrap up. Colonel Justice, thank you so much for coming. And thank you all for listening to The Pillars, the podcast of the 363rd ISR Wing of the United States Air Force. I'm Dr. Jerry Walker. And I'm Sergeant Eckberg. And I'm Chaplain Jim Bridgham. (laughs) Lieutenant Colonel Marcy Justice. Until next time, if you need us, please reach out to us on the global address list. Finally, thank you for what you do for our nation and have a great Air Force Day. Mm -hmm.